I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how do we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join our discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode four, we read Second Treatise of Government by John Locke from 1690. John Locke was born on August 29th, 1632 in Rington, Somerset, England. He was raised in Pensford near Bristol. In 1642, when Locke was 10 years old, the English Civil War broke out. His father served as a captain for the parliamentarians under Oliver Cromwell. His father's immediate commander afterward became a member of parliament, and his patronage allowed the young John Locke to gain admission first to Westminster School in London, then to Oxford University. He attended Christ Church, Oxford at the age of 20. He found the curriculum's focus on ancient texts bland and boring. Locke was not impressed with the academic tradition, which held up classical figures like Aristotle unquestioningly as the source of all knowledge. So, in his spare time, Locke pursued his own reading, preferring the new natural sciences of chemistry, medicine, and physics. He also found inspiration in the works of modern philosophers such as René Descartes. Locke took classes in medicine, and after obtaining a bachelor's degree in 1656, he returned for another Bachelor of Medicine in 1675. After taking his degrees, Locke stayed in Oxford, where he was appointed a fellow at Christ Church. In 1666, he met Lord Anthony Ashley Cooper, Earl of Shaftesbury. The two became close friends, and Ashley soon employed Locke as his personal physician. There was an important overlap between his medical research and philosophical views. Locke developed philosophical systems which emphasized reason, understanding, and empirical evidence. This stood in contrast to former ideas of innate knowledge, which could be traced back to philosophers such as Plato. Locke believed that humans entered the world with minds as a tabula rasa, or blank slate. Humans obtained all our knowledge of the world from our sense experience. This theory of knowledge became known as empiricism and it was very influential for the European Enlightenment. Locke's close friend and political ally, Ashley, was appointed Lord Chancellor in 1672, but Ashley soon fell out with King Charles II and was imprisoned for a year in the Tower of London. Under threat of arrest himself, Locke went abroad to France and later fled to Holland. He was able to return to England in February 1689 and help to draft the English Bill of Rights. It did not go as far as Locke had wished regarding religious tolerance, but it provided for free and fair elections. In later years, Locke suffered from ill health and retired to high labor in Essex, where he continued to write and entertain friends such as Sir Isaac Newton. He died in 1704. Locke's project in the two treatises is to place sovereignty in the hands of the individual. He spends the first treatise, uh, which we didn't read, arguing against the divine right of kings, He uses the second treatise, which we did read, to describe how humans first emerged from the state of nature to form government. And he moves from there into describing the role of legitimate government. And along the way, he introduced ideas that formed some of the conservative political foundation. There's a lot there to digest. 
And that's it's good we read this one so early, I think, because everything that came after Locke is influenced by him. Mm-hmm. So I guess we should start right away with the state of nature. You know, Locke, yeah. Locke is exploring where's political power come from? What were people doing before there were governments? How did, you know, how did we live? If, if we were erecting this government afterwards, how does it get power? He talks about the state of nature, and I think it's a lot of what he's writing is consciously in contrast to Thomas Hobbes, who's about a generation older than him and wrote Leviathan in the 1660s, and also talked about the state of nature. Whereas Hobbes described nature as the war of all against all, where it's just everybody has a right to everything, it's anarchy, and that's why we need government. Locke describes a, a nature that is anarchic in the sense that there's no government, but it's not without law and, or, or reason. See, he says, we must consider what state, me- state all men are naturally in. That is a state of perfect freedom to order their actions and dispose of their possessions and persons as they think fit within the bounds of the law of nature. And that, that law of nature concept, I, th- I thought was, was an interesting place to start. As you said, Hobbes, his vision of the state of nature was fear and selfishness. And has that famous quote where he says the state of nature was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems that Locke had uh, a rosier vision. It was much more reasonable, much more enjoyable. He says the state of nature was a state of perfect freedom, a state of equality. And reason is the law that governed the state of nature. So rather than fear and selfishness, he says reason, everyone is bound to preserve himself and to preserve the rest of mankind, unless it be to do justice to an offender. Men are not bound to submit to the unjust will of others. So in the, in the state of nature, uh, everyone was free and equal, reasonably happy, it seemed like. Right. So it raises the question, well, okay, well, that sounds like a pretty idyllic place. Why would you want to leave the state of nature? Right. It, I have to admit that Hobbes's vision sounds more like what I think most people think of they think of uh, cavemen and you know mm-hmm. prehistoric people. Everyone just running around doing whatever they want, unless they're well. And even in our time, I mean, the way that we the way we do envision it is sort of a dystopia of you know the buildings crumbling and you know a, a post apocalyptic world. Yeah, that's that's true. Everyone against everyone. Hobbes sort sort of saw man as little better than an animal in those days. Where I think Locke sees him as a creature of reason, even under that state of anarchy. There. Are there are nature's laws. No one, he writes, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. So even before we have laws the way you know you and I think of them today, written in you know tr- statute books and whatnot, passed by legislatures, there was there was natural law. His whole his whole vision kind of comes from that. Yeah. And so why would you want to leave the state of nature? Well, Hobbes would say you want to leave the state of nature because everyone's going around murdering one another. But uh, for Locke, he would say. Well, we want to leave the state of nature because it was pretty idyllic, but at times, even though humans are not allowed to harm one another, as you said, sometimes they would. And so there was some uncertainty. There was a a lack of safety. And the theme that he pounds over and over uh, through this work is they needed a way to preserve uh, property, preserve property. Once uh, human beings started to uh, own property, and we'll talk about that in just a second, but um, we needed a way to preserve it, uh, keep it safe from the invasion of others or the harm of others. So harming your person, but then also harming your property. In the state of nature, there's just an absence of established law 
they don't have, there is no impartial judge and there is no power to sort of execute the laws and prosecute somebody who enters into um, a state of war or in other words, someone who has designed to destroy another man's life or property. There's no way to sort of sentence them. Right. And that neutral judge theme also comes up over and over because he, even though he, he makes it clear that in the state of nature, we have a right to punish offenders against natural law and also to take reprisals against them and get back whatever they've taken from you. He recognizes that individual people are not the best judges of their own cases. And if you're one person might say that guy was going to steal from me or he was trying to kill me. And the other guy would say, I wasn't doing anything of the sort. And, and it inevitably would devolve into murder and been mm-hmm. a reprisal. All that. If everyone knew what was really happening, that, that system might be able to prevail. But because people's emotions fall into it and people get biased naturally towards their own case, um, there is the need of a neutral judge. Yeah, and in the state of nature, he says every offense committed can be punished in equal measure. So, you know, everyone has the biases you say, but they have in the state of nature, you're sort of empowered to pursue an eye for an eye. So if someone hurts you, then you have immediate recompense to hurt them equally. Yeah, and I, I guess lesser punishments do require civilization. I mean, you can't you can't jail somebody if you're just by yourself. You, know, you can't restrict their freedom in any lesser way than total retribution. Yeah, the neutral judge and the protection of property, I think, are the two main reasons man, man came together to form governments and to better themselves, even though it looks like at first blush they're losing something in that that, that absolute mm-hmm. perfect freedom. Yeah, and so uh, civil government is the proper remedy for the what he calls inconveniences of the state of nature. <laughs> right. And so uh, humans created a compact... They, they remain in the state of nature until they consent to join a pol- uh, the political society. But once they do, once they band together, that's when government is, is first created. Right. And um, even in creating government, I think Locke is at pains to tell us that the government can't do anything. It's still limited by the same laws of nature because nobody can d- delegate more power to a government than he himself already possesses. So you, you can't mm-hmm. make a government and then say, all right, now you can just kill anybody you want because that wasn't that wasn't allowed to any of the people who created the government. So how by coming together could mm-hmm. they all of a sudden transcend the, the natural law just because there's a bunch. And that uh, I mean, a lot of this you can tell is directed at the crisis he was writing about, about the, the Stuart monarchs taking more and more power into their hands, diminishing the legislature of England, mm-hmm. trampling on the people's rights. There's a whole episode we could get out of this, but understanding the Stuart monarchs and what they did is almost essential to understanding our own bill of rights that came a hundred years later, because everything in there is something that some European monarch had done to his people. Oh yeah. You know, our founding fathers, but can't do this, can't do that because it had all been done fairly recently against that background. I think Locke is, while he doesn't want to say that government is extremely limited, he does want to say, well, you can't, can't just do whatever you want. You can't just be a, Absolutely. Yeah, and so yeah, as he says, power of society can never extend farther than the common good, which is to secure everyone's property. So security, liberty, property. He says no other end but peace, safety, and the public good. And again, he defines public good as securing everyone's property. Really, anything beyond that, the the community only has has the authority to uh, enforce uh, to execute those laws and prevent and redress those injuries and really doesn't go much beyond that. 
I thought the property theme was, um, it reminded me of last week's readings too, about how we recalled the last metaph- metaphysical, right? Locke gives a lot of thought to how we have property, why we have it, how do we get from, and he refers back to uh, a lot of biblical origins too, since that would have been mm-hmm. the common understanding of his audience at the time too. Is how do we get from Adam and Eve to now where people own individual farms? Uh, should we Should we dive into that now too? Yeah, I think he has such a, a unique, unique. Well, at least to our day, our way of thinking, a unique view of what property is. Uh, let's dive into that. I love that. Basically, it's um, every man has a property in his own person. This nobody has a right to but himself. The labor of his body and the work of his hands, we may say, are properly his. And whatsoever he removes out of that state of nature hath, out of the state that nature hath provided and left it in, he has mixed his labor with and joined it to something that's his own, and thereby makes it his property. So I think Mm -hmm. he's saying that God gave earth to all human beings in common, but he also told them to work it, farm it, mine it, what have you. And by doing so, he essentially commanded mankind to make private property in Locke's view. He's saying, you know, once you, our bodies, which we must own, if, if we are any sort of a free creature, produce the labor. And anytime somebody first tills that soil, cuts down that tree, you know, gathers fruit, He's making it his own in a way that is irreversible. Um, he's mm-hmm. mixing something of himself that is his labor in 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 with the property that was heretofore common. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting, and um, we can imagine in a state of nature where everyone is sort of begins as hunter gatherers and picking berries, but as there's more and more people to sort of populate the space, then you want kind of a an area of your own and so there's there's plenty of land and so you just sort of find a some square footage and say okay this is where i'm going to plant my crops or this is where i'm going to these are this is where i'm going to pick the berries or something and it's by putting your labor into it that it becomes that it moves from the common uh, endowment uh, this endowed land from god that's common to everyone it becomes yours by putting your effort into it. And I think for our fast forward to today, that I, I just love that that vision of real estate, property, things. They don't have value until you put use to them. And even in a dynamic economy like ours, a 20, 21st century economy, things don't have value until you sort of create and build and make use of. I think he's saying that's what God intended or at least nature intended is for you, for humans to uh, put the earth to good use uh, as good stewards, uh, but to work it and develop it. And that's where wealth comes from is from the cultivation and not just from, just from having it for the sake of having it or uh, having it available, but rather putting, putting it to use, uh, cultivating it, planting, um, setting aside, making work. And so he's saying, as you do all that, uh, you're creating a property right in all of these things and all of this real estate or all this land. And, uh, yeah, I think that's really interesting and, and a good food for thought for us now. It is. Uh, it's, I, I think, I mean, obviously it's not something that's happening much today because there's no more terra nullis. All the land is owned by somebody or something. But when we make intellectual property, that's kind of how it goes. If I you know, yeah, write something or even make this podcast. The recording's nothing until we speak on it. 
and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden it has a value, at least to us, hopefully to our listeners. You know, that's that's creating something that didn't exist before. I think it also kind of aligns with the uh, the interests of the Whig party that Locke was a part of in those days, because you know, the, the, the Tories were often the ancient landowners who just had stuff. And the Whigs were mostly men on the rise. I mean, some of them were also ancient landowners. There was, oh, interesting. You know, it, it wasn't a clear-cut distinction, but more of them were new men in society, not necessarily folks who had land since the Norman Conquest. So I, th- I think the mm-hmm. idea of industry to them is, is valuable. A lot of them were middle-class people, not landowners. And you know, they were making things and, and moving up and, and attaining wealth in a way that people really hadn't in, in older times. That's a great insight because you could say you you could think it, take it from the standpoint of uh, these wigs uh, have uh, material envy, and so what we should do is uh, make the 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 rich and powerful low by taking from <laughs> them, but instead they take the tack of, hey, look, we're actually going to put this stuff to use. We're going to use it. We're going to we're going to build. We're going to create. We're going to create value, and. You should let us do that. Yeah, and he he kind of pairs that um, the natural right in property, but date, dating back to the state of nature. At, you know the, what Weaver would have called the metaphysical right, and the, but also with the practical right that he discusses. Also, labor's adding value. Mankind would never have gotten past the hunter gatherer stage if we didn't have private property, because nobody's going to improve mm-hmm. land that's common. Because then somebody else will just take the fruits of that land. It doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. It's twofold. I, mean, I, I remember we were focused a lot on it. doesn't matter if it's good. It's a right. But Locke, Locke's doing mm-hmm. both and saying that it's a right and it's also very good. Yeah, and so early on in the uh, evolution, the um, development of humans as hunter-gatherers, uh, how much can you own? Well, as he says, as much as any one person can make use of to any advantage of life before it spoils. You can, you can pick as many berries as you want as long as you're going to use them, as long as you're going to eat them. But you can't pick so many that it starts to spoil before you get to it. Because if the fruit perishes, he says, the person has offended against the common law of nature and is liable to be punished. And presumably he means punished by God, but I guess could be punished by his uh, fellow state of nature travelers. But what changed later, um, get enough people, I guess, and you start to cultivate the land maybe through farming and uh, more stable uh, access to food, we have the invention of money. So he says money was created basically as a lasting thing that men can keep that doesn't spoil. So now you can take advantage of basically owning or uh, acquiring more than you can use before it perishes, Uh, but now you can exchange it, exchange it for money. He says money allows men to avoid the problem of perishables and possess more land than he himself can use. It's a, it's a method for men to hold a disproportionate and now unequal possessions of the earth. And I wanted to reference, you know, Rousseau here and his, he, he also obviously is a, one of the original thinkers when it comes to contract theory. Rousseau says where, where Locke says uh, money is created and this is a good thing because it allows even better use or more efficient use of resources you know, Rousseau viewed this as once private property was created, that was the moment where inequality entered the world. And that's the moment where we had the introduction of greed and competition and vanity. 
and that was the fall from grace and that was what created the the need for the social contract but Locke thinks very differently he, he views money as a good thing because now we can make even more efficient use of all the resources but it also allowed for inequality and uh, allowed some people to own more than others right and I, I I don't think he sees that inequality as a problem at all in that um, in his view it's coming from effort it, you know it's not it's not coming from anything unjust or, mm-hmm. or happenstance it's uh well somebody picked more berries so we sold them nothing wrong with that somebody mm-hmm. else is just laying around that day he has less um mm-hmm. and he doesn't dwell much on the inequality i guess because it oh, i mean it did come up in the english civil war there was a there was a leveler sect that wanted to i mean we still use the word today so they they wanted to put everyone on equal basis um although they were, mm-hmm. it was a pretty fringe group in those days there were a lot of strange folk running around during the civil war in England, strange theologies and political ideas. I don't think financial equality was a big issue in 1690. I think everyone recognized yeah. some folks are going to have more. That's, that's how it goes. Yeah. And he talks about equality, but not from the stand, from the standpoint of material equality. Cause for him, he says all men are by nature are equal. Yeah. And, and he views it as, each man has a right to natural freedom without being subjected to the will or authority of another man. So he's always viewing equality through the lens of freedom and liberty as opposed to what's the material equality. Because he'll even say, age or virtue may give men just precedence over others. And basically he's saying, you know, merit can place some above those at the common level. He says, inequality of, of material outcomes that's not a problem because of what you you just said kyle and that is if, if someone's going to spend more time picking berries well all the all the better for that person to lock uh, equality means god created each human being equally and everyone has basically access to the starting line when the whistle's blown on this on the state of nature well then whoever gets ahead gets ahead yeah that's that's a good way of putting it and I, I, you can definitely see the themes of that coming out a hundred or so years later in our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, even even some of the phrases that make it very clear that the Founding Fathers read and agreed with a lot of what Locke was talking about here. Base conservative stuff, equality of opportunity, equality of dignity, but not equality of results. And mm-hmm. I think that's something we're going to probably see in just about everything we read. So that should tell us mm-hmm. something, maybe. <laughs> so let's, uh, he, he, dies, he develops freedom a little bit more, tells us what it is. And you tell me if you, this sounds familiar. He says, the end of the law is to preserve and enlarge freedom, not to abolish or restrain freedom. Yeah, that's, that, we've that, read that, that is, that could have been Goldwater writing that 300 years later. Yeah. So you see the influence of Locke on Goldwater, because presumably, I mean, that's kind of what he had in mind and probably had read it. So to Locke, liberty is freedom from restraint and violence from others. But as you said, Kyle, freedom does not mean people can do whatever they want. It means people can dispose of their property as they will within the bounds of law. So he's getting back to property. Property is so central to Locke. It's, it's central for the reason people leave the state of nature. It's central to the reason people uh, created, formed a government, uh, formed a political society. It's central to the role of government is preserving that property it's central to his concept of freedom, which is you can do whatever you want with your stuff, you know, with your land, 
with your car, with your tools. It's yours and you get to do whatever you want with it as long as it doesn't harm others. Again, it's something I think we're going to come back to again and again is your things, your will, where, you know, as long as your rights extend as, as, as far as they can go without actually starting to harm another person and his rights. He talks later about taxes, but my, we, I think it fits in here well within the political society, within the government that's formed to preserve and enlarge freedom, as he says. He says, everyone who enjoys his share of the protection should pay out of his estate his proportion for the maintenance of it. He's pretty particular about the fact that you're just paying out enough to maintain protection. It's it's not a carte blanche license to expand the role of government. In fact, as we'll talk about probably in a minute, he's, he's very particular about legislative overreach. Yes. Um, and what would have bothered him more in his day is not the growth of a welfare state, which really didn't happen for a long time, but I think Kings taking more taxes than was needed to better themselves personally, to build up mm -hmm. that standing army that all lovers of Liberty hated. Yeah. Just to, to make himself more rich, but also more powerful and overall the people. I think that's what he saw was going on around them. I think that's what he gets into absolute monarchy being inconsistent with civil society. Let's hit that. And in, uh, in chapter 11, he starts with, scope of the legislative power. You know, he's very strong on the idea of a, le of a legislative having a, uh, what he call what, what he would prefer as one lasting assembly, but he says the role and scope of legislative power, the preservation of property is the end of government. The legislative power cannot take away property whenever it pleases. Truly no property rights. If another can take it away at will. So if the legislative power is just taking away at will, then you really actually don't have a property right. right. He's thinking in context, as you said, of kings and the monarchical power. Does this have any application to us today? It's interesting because, I mean, even even the founding fathers who were big Locke adherents took that down a notch, I think. I mean, eminent domain is recognized in the Constitution that you can take private land for public purposes with just compensation, which, I mean, maybe in, the, in Locke's pure philosophy, that would be a a violation because even though you're getting just compensation mm -hmm. it's still still a, a little bit arbitrary it's it's somebody saying well that's you think that's yours but it's not right now because we're going to build a road through it but even now that 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 touches mm -hmm. a nerve you know it, 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 it even now people will it, it's it's upsetting it, it psychologically feels like a perversion of of government role is to to take a take your property you get compensation but you, you take the compensation and they get to build a road or uh, or even more perverse uh, get to hand it to a corporation to build some some industrial right like the, uh, like the kilo versus uh, new haven case yeah that was i think that one kind of transcended left and right too because it was a big corporation getting the money so i think a lot of people even on yeah. the other side were aghast at that one but you're right even in a more normal taking i mean i my friend on the county planning commission here has, has some tales of people just fighting tooth and nail for a few feet that of a wide, road widening because it's theirs. And I, I think Locke would say that people fit, think the things they own are theirs and that's natural law. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's our civil law too. When government violates that right, even, no matter how gently or legalistically, it, it, it'll drive you a little crazy. But I, I think the general idea still holds in the 
the American Republic, that what you have is yours. There's sort of a, an innate under um, instinct, and I think it probably, well, surely it comes from Locke that's trickled down to us today, this instinct that we're empowered as individuals, the individual has the sovereignty, my television set is mine, and it's it's not to be taken. And, and if the even today, if the government's going to take my land or take something of mine, take my taxes, take my money, well, we're going to push back and say, does that fall within the authority of the government? Can you really take it from me? And even if you can, I don't like it, and I'm going to push back. And I mean, we have political fights over this exact issue all the time. In fact, it's almost the central conversation in Congress is how much how much can the government take? How much can the government redistribute? Uh, how much can it share? How much can it remove from you? Um, I mean, money is more fungible, so it doesn't feel as uh, offensive, I guess, maybe, than taking uh, the first uh, four feet of of your front yard. Right, but it's, but ultimately, it's still yours, the same. Right, it's still it's still uh, it still pinches in the same way philosophically. You're right, and I think I don't think there's been a Congress where there wasn't a fight about taxes in some form. Going back to the scope in chapter thirteen, he discusses legislative overreach. He says the legislative has only a fiduciary power to act for certain ends. And he, again, he's hitting this again, peace, safety, and protection of property. We see how, you know, John Locke is a forebearer of conservative intellectual, uh, conservative thought because peace, safety, protection of property, that sounds uh, like a pretty libertarian view of the role of government and doesn't provide a lot of room for, let's say, jobs programs or universal health care or you know, alternative energy projects. No, or, or even, or even, uh, moral promotion of morals. Great point. Which I, as you mentioned in the introduction, he, he, uh, one of Locke's other political beliefs was that the government should tolerate all religions or so. I, I think, you know, going up against the English government that he was dealing with was one where, you know, you had the church of England and everyone, <clears throat> I think, uh, he would even say that the government, shouldn't be using your taxes for that either. It shouldn't, should really be leaving us alone. That's a lot more libertarian than a lot of conservatives today. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting as we, as this uh, podcast moves forward and develops to see kind of the difference, because this, this is a space obviously where we're going to see contradiction between conservatives. And I, I think we're going to find out that there is no absolute pure strain of conservative thought. Instead, there's some some views and positions that carry forward more or less, but then we're also going to see some contradictions like this, like, you know, Goldwater would tip more on the side of sort of the libertarian side, more the lock side, but I think we're going to have readings. In fact, probably even in the next couple of weeks where. Yes. I think I was thinking of next week's <laughs> readings too. Where these, uh, the authors, these thinkers have foresee a, a much more, expansive role on, on the moral side. Getting back to the legislature, uh, I think Locke's idea of the delegation of our natural powers to the legislature is sweeping, but not absolute. And a lot of what he gets into, I think, could be called the right to revolution. Mm -hmm. So when do, uh, when do we have a, a, a right to revolt? And when do we not? That's a tough one. <laughs> he, he goes on a lot about it and there's not, I don't think it totally is um, able to be boiled down, but essentially 
when the legislature starts doing things <clears throat> that it was not entrusted with the authority to do when it exceeds its natural limits I think when it transgresses the law of nature was that was that your understanding too? yeah and I was just looking here whenever the legislative neglects or opposes its purpose it forfeits its power um, in, in another place he says whenever the legislative breach the trust they forfeit the power the people had put in their hands and at that point the power devolves back to the people and so the grounds for revolution is well, he says it needs to go a little bit farther than that. He says a long train of abuses, uh, prevarications and artifices tending in the same way when rulers grow exorbitant in their use of, in the use of their power and employ it for the destruction rather than the preservation of the properties of the people. So whenever the legislative or executive in, in his, in his time, obviously the executive is the prince, the king, whenever either of these functions of government uh, overstep their bounds and start to destroy or not, at least not preserve property. Well, then the society is ripe for, for overthrow and revolution. Right. And that point, that, that point that it, it shouldn't just be one incident is important because I, th I think he was afraid of saying you can just have a revolution every time you don't get what you want and every legislature is going to misstep, but if they're corrected, if they're turned out of office in, in the next election or if the, in the case of a monarch, if he's admonished by his legislature and, and corrects himself, okay, we don't have to overthrow the entire system. Mm -hmm. I think looking at he was, as he was uh, at the train of abuses, aiming at absolutism as the end, end result, at some point it gets so bad that really the, the whole thing has to be torn mm -hmm. down and the power returned to the people from whom it came. It seems easier for us to imagine that scenario playing out in this 17th century or 18th century than it would today. And it makes me wonder while I was reading this, well, what would it look like in 2018? What, what would it be the train of abuses? Well, you could imagine, I don't know, the jailing of journalists that starts to, you know, jail other political enemies. And then um, suddenly there is a restriction on the use of your property or a restriction on the use of the internet a restriction on use of Google. And then they start coming into your, I don't know what, what would it look like? What, what does that dystopia look like? Where, what would it look like in 2018 for it to go far enough that uh, the legislative power that the government has forfeited his power? What do you think? Yeah, it's, I mean, some of the things could be things that have happened. <clears throat> um, just maybe, things that happened individually in American history, but all together happening now, one after the other. I mean, we had, if you had a president putting people in camps based on their national mm -hmm. origin, well, that's something that did happen in American history, but it wasn't also accompanied by a train of other gross mm -hmm. abuses. But if it were, if there were that, and then also the restrictions on the other things that are enumerated in the Bill of Rights, the free speech, like you mentioned, the free press. And, and, and I think in our system also, it would have to involve uh, another branch of government saying, no, you can't do that. Congress passing law or courts overruling, and then the executive going forward. Yeah, you'd have to almost presuppose that the, the judiciary has, has been decimated somehow or has been limited, has been sidelined. And I think our, our, our system of government gives us clearer markers of when things are getting out of control and tyrannical because of that. Because if, if the power remains divided among the three branches who still respect each other's powers, it's hard to call it tyrannical. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it might still be overbearing. I mean, there still be, might be 
too much regulations on a certain thing, too much taxation on another, but it's not the same sort of arbitrary rule that Locke mm-hmm. is talking about. He seems to envision uh, extraordinary circumstances, not a administrative, uh, an HHS rule that, that annoys, rather, <laughs> it's something right, I, much more invasive. I think he, he talks about two in particular. If the, uh, if the king tries to overturn the government with a purpose and design to ruin the kingdom, or if he makes himself dependent on another and subjects his kingdom, which his ancestors left him and the people put free into his hands into the dominion mm-hmm. of another. And he, he quotes an earlier source on that, um, but he's really definitely talking about uh, King Charles II and King James II in the idea that they, they were transforming England's government in a way into a more continental style absolutism. Mm-hmm. It was very common for Whigs in his day to say that they were making themselves into slaves to the French mm-hmm. king. Which was kind of true. I mean, they were allied closely with Louis the Fourteenth, and they took a lot of gold from him because having that income from France let them ignore Parliament and dismiss Parliament because they didn't. The only strings Parliament had is like the strings our Congress had—the power mm-hmm. of the purse. And if if the king is getting gold from France, then he doesn't really have to talk to Parliament at all or listen to them, or you know, he can just just rule. Yeah, interesting. Which is, I think, why we have our emoluments, our emoluments clause, clause in the Constitution is our, our founding fathers, a president to be able to say, I don't care what Congress says, I've got money from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Locke is talking about absolutism generally, and he's also talking about it pretty specifically in, in what he's seeing as, as he's writing. It's hard to imagine something exactly like that happening yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. Well, and especially in, in his day, you could take up the arms from your from your gun closet. It's a little hard to do that today. Even with your AR-15, it does, it's not really going to stand much of a chance if you have a drone come blast you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think people, some people underestimate how effective that could be. I don't think you'd have a Battle of Saratoga <laughs> where you'd win a, a pitched battle against professional army. But we've also seen people with guns and IEDs make an occupation hell for the occupiers. Mm-hmm. Well, that, I mean, and that raises an interesting point. Maybe it's a little tangentious, but our entire system relies on people following through. The collection of people will hopefully do the right thing in the end. You know, you, you have to, re, for, for a strong judiciary, you have to rely on a judicial branch and the people empowering them and giving legitimacy to it for a revolution what we rely on the fact that the people have changed their mind and said, okay, but we're going to band together and push back against this. But moving ahead into the future in a future of, of drones and AI, it really won't require that many people, you know, rulers, leaders with their hands on the controls to uh, take advantage of uh, everyone else. That's true. The technology amplifies the power in a way that I don't think Locke could have imagined. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about uh, his, his understanding of tacit consent, because I found this really interesting going back to the state of nature. um, People leave the state of nature in order to protect their property. So they form a government. That's an origin story, an Adam and Eve story. I'm not sure that Locke really believed that that sort of played out the way that it, it did. It's more of a thought experiment. And really, um, just as a side note, this was kind of his the state of nature idea and social contract was kind of his way of getting around the king, 
pushing back against uh, divine right of kings because he's saying, again, in the first treatise, uh, he, he writes at length about how divine right of kings, uh, that can't be legitimate because you know the assumption is we have a direct line from Adam, uh, as in Adam and Eve. Uh, so basically God has granted the king that authority because it's the son of the son of the son of the son for a thousand, ten thousand generations. And uh, he shows, no, that can't, it would, that whole idea would break down. Social contract is his way of saying, no, people are the sovereigns. It's individuals where he's trying to empower the individual rather than empowering um, just a few of the monarchs. But how about for those people that were not alive at the the time of the origin story who were not part of the, the original social contract, like us, you and I, well, right. we're, we haven't given our consent. I mean, we, we were not there at the table and said, yes, I'm willing to do this to protect my property. So how do we play into this story? Right. And that, that, that's a fair objection. Um, since no one remembers a state of nature, if it ever, if it ever truly existed, but right. But by taking society's protections, especially as, as to land, we are accepting it. We're accepting everything that comes with that society and, and basically giving our consent to be ruled by it. Because if we're, if our things are being protected from people stealing them or trespassing on them, then we're essentially saying that we agree to the bargain of our forefathers that we're going to give away a little bit of our perfect freedom and in return, take back the protection of the state over our property. Yeah. And again, property is key. Yeah. That's, that, that was interesting to me, but it makes sense, I think. And so I guess uh, what, what this sparked the thought in my own mind, well, this makes a little bit more sense why maybe at least at the American founding, well, even prior to that in, in, in England, uh, it was property owners that, that had right to vote had an ability to pr- participate in political life. And I think here from Locke, I think the reason why is, well, if, if the property is the key, it's the whole reason we formed a political society in the first place is to protect your land. You give tacit consent by having property protected by the government, by the political society. You are a political participant at that point. So then the question, well, if you don't own land or you don't have really property that's that's worth protecting. Have you given tacit consent? Right. And it's, that's a, that's a tougher question. I mean, he talks about people, any, any sort of protection by the laws or in, entering into a place where those laws are enforced requires you to obey them. So, and he talks about even, even the foreigner visiting another country is bound by the laws there, but he's not a part of that polity. Well, that's fascinating. I found that so fascinating, especially in the very contemporary debate about naturalized citizenship because in yes. our constitution it says uh, for those who um, submit to the or who, who are subject to the laws of the country but Locke says but a submitting to the laws of any country and living quietly and enjoying privileges and protection under them does not make him a member of that society so again it goes back to property it goes back to land if you're not owning property if you don't have land and you're just a foreigner who's just kind of bopping along in the country and yeah you're protected because the the government will protect you from from destruction of yourself or harm to you but that doesn't necessarily make you a member of society that is not constitute uh tacit consent he says only actually entering to positive engagement of property or by express contact yeah that 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 was 
a little surprising to me. Um, and I think it, it, it sets up kind of a, a spectrum on the one end, you know, the, the big landowner, clearly a part of society has a stake in it. And the vagabond on the other side with nothing, just wandering around sleeping on the streets and, you know, gets protection of the laws, but clearly is not <clears throat> making this. He's not really making society. He's not contributing to it in the same way, but for people in between, especially a lot of the people who we would, we would now call middle class. Um, not, not everyone owns property mm-hmm. in the real, in the real property sense. Right. Um, but everybody has stuff. And that stuff needs protection from the government. I mean, from the, you know, from interlopers and even a person living out of his car, he still owns that car. Mm -hmm. He is accepting the government's protection of the fact that no one can just steal it from him, you know, toss his stuff on the street and take off. I mean, depending on how far we take the idea of property, I wonder if that doesn't encompass just about everybody living in a place. Mm -hmm. Well, and everyone has money. Yeah. And as he points out, that is a kind of property that, I'm not sure it's as exclusionary as it sounds right away. I think it's more more that Locke focuses on real property because that's what people thought of as property in 1690. Yeah, but it definitely um, submitting to the authority of the law brings up the uh, yeah the birthright citizenship debate of today. I, that, that made me think of the same thing. Like how much do you if you just sneak into a place? Are you how much investment do you have in that society? Yeah, so I think Locke would say pretty clearly like. Oh yeah, you're you, you're in the country and you're sort of protected, uh, your person is protected and so forth, but you haven't actually entered into the the social contract. You haven't given tacit consent in that way. Uh, that'll be an interesting part of if it, if this ever surely is going to get litigated in the next few years. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how how some of this kind of original thought as a basis how that plays into it. But yeah, I wonder how much <clears throat> I haven't heard anybody mention Locke with regard to these debates, but the ideas that he's talking about are maybe it's because they're so they've been a part of our society since the founding. I think those ideas are coming through. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to be American? What does it mean to be you know, a member of a, of a, of a polity? Uh, so I think even people who haven't read Locke are drawing all his ideas indirectly. Mm hmm. I think it's it's influencing that debate among others. Yeah, I think you're right. So there's at least one more thing I want to hit before uh, before we end. Our time's running short. Uh, and that was in chapter 16. He talks about inheritance. And I just found this really interesting for, for conservative thought. He says, Every man is born with a right before any other man to inherit his father's goods. And nobody can yeah. take away any part of it without their consent. Otherwise, that creates their direct slaves under the force of war, he says. But I, I really thought this was interesting in the context of, we'd call it the, the death tax debate. Uh, he says right. every man has a right to whatever his father owned. Yeah, and that's interesting. I mean, he would have, if he would have foreseen what happened in his own country by, it was around 1910 when they put inheritance taxes on states that effectively destroyed the ruling class of England purposefully and, you know, ruinous rates. So if somebody just had land and didn't have any other income coming in, he wasn't passing it on Mm -hmm. in a place like England where land was distributed, you know, at the conquest and not much after you could, you could see why people would want that a little more, but here, I mean, here in America, it is a little different. 
Yeah, because here in America, well, well so we just we just said that um, you know Locke didn't necessarily have in mind that there was an actual origin story of a social contract, but in fact, in America, there pretty much was. I mean, as close yeah. as close to it as you can get, there was a, a starting line, there was a get a banding together and hashing out what would a government look like and what's required in order to protect property, what's required in order to ensure safety. There was sort of a, an original starting line where. In England, you have going back hundreds of years, hundreds of generations, property was somehow captured and then carried forward for into infinity. And there really never was a an original starting line. And especially since America was so large, right. you know, maybe the land in Massachusetts was more or less taken, but you could always, you know, go to Ohio and just claim a spot and say, this is mine. And, and we had uh, the Homestead Act for uh, out west. Basically, uh, land was available for the taking. Yeah, and that, that vastness made our our kind of freedom different, <clears throat> I think. And, and people have written whole books about how the frontier made America and made us a different people, and how the closing of the frontier had its own effects. But it, it makes yeah, the wide openness of it is makes us a lot closer to Locke's vision than anything that was going on in Europe. That 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 natural right to inheritance. When you think about it, I mean, that sounds extreme now, but when you think about it, it's if you have a right to property and the right to do with what you want to your property, then that has to include devising it after your death. Mm -hmm. And that, and if the government can't invade your property when you're alive, you know, why should it be able to invade it when your heirs take it? Yeah. Yeah. It it should belong to them just as it belongs to you. Yeah. All right. So do we have any uh, closing thoughts on John Locke? Well, I'd say I'd I'd say Locke is in some ways the, the granddaddy of a lot of conservative thoughts. He's important. People still talk about him, and the fact that the founders talked about him means that we're going to talk about him because we're living under their laws and the society they created. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm glad we read this one, and uh, I would encourage our readers. It's not it's not actually very long either. This is something, and and the language is a little old timey, but it's not impenetrable. Yeah, it's more accessible it, it, than I. I, I th- remembered from college. <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> so it's it's not bad. Um, and it's it's he raises ideas that are worth thinking about and that uh, still have great effect on us today. Uh, completely agreed. And you can see how this thought has carried forward. And clearly, the uh, American founders had uh, Locke at the bedside table as they thought through how to how to build a system and the the concept of limited government that that the founders had in mind that is a strong basis of conservative thought today clearly has uh, a lot of its origins and a lot of its uh, initiation in, in John Locke's thought. So pretty cool. Okay. That's it for John Locke and the second treatise of government. Uh, for our next episode, we'll be reading George Will's uh, Statecraft as Soulcraft. So hopefully you'll join us then. Thanks so much.